In 1 Kings chapter 18, we'll be reading this morning verses 17 through 24, but we'll also be covering much more to the story than just these verses. We'll be kind of moving back a little bit earlier into this book, but then we'll also be moving beyond this text as we consider some thoughts together. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 17 and then reading through verse 24. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? But Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. People answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on... On the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire. He is God. So all the people answered and said. It is well spoken. I was struck earlier in the week. By the. um, Some of the interesting things that come up. In 1 Kings. These first several chapters. First Kings begins with the death of David and Solomon taking over the kingdom in his stead. And it moves on into a period where Solomon builds the temple. And in chapter 8, he's, he's dedicating the temple and he's leading Israel in the worship of Yahweh. And he prays a great prayer in chapter 8, a prayer of dedication for the temple. And one of the things that he says, which is very peculiar, he says if there's drought in the land, and he goes through some of the, some of the uh, hypothetical details of such a thing. If there's drought in the land, if our people turn from you, if all these bad things come upon us because we've broken covenant with you, Lord, bring us back. Hear our prayers. And he goes on and on. I, I encourage you to go back and read chapter 8. It's a beautiful, beautiful, lengthy prayer that Solomon offers up to Yahweh as he's dedicating the temple to Yahweh. But he mentions this idea of if there's drought coming. When we open up upon the story of Elijah here in 1 Kings, we find that Israel has followed after the the Baals, the the gods of the people, the gods of the communities around them. They they worship Asherah and they have all of these prophets, a whole uh, a whole religious 
cultic system that's in place where Israel is trying to hang on to their worship of Yahweh, but they're also trying to follow after all these other gods because if it works, it works. They're very pragmatic people. You know, if it, if it works to depend upon God to provide for me, then okay, I'll do that. If it, if it works instead to take matters in my own hands and find another avenue, okay, I'll do that. They're very, very pragmatic people. But Elijah comes on the scene. He's called by God to be his prophet. And he declares that there's going to be a drought in the land. Yahweh tells Elijah, it will not rain but at your word. Very interesting. And so he goes to Ahab who has married a lady named Jezebel. A a wife from a foreign land who's brought in all of these foreign gods and idols with her. Ahab was following the line of those who came before him. He lived in the northern kingdom. He reigned in the northern kingdom. And all of the kings of the north were evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the, the Old Testament tells us not one, not one good name of a king who was faithful in the northern kingdom after Solomon's death and after the kingdom was split in two. You had a king up north, the first king after Solomon, Jeroboam. And you find that all the kings that, that follow after him, follow after him in his sin, in his evil, in his unfaithfulness to covenant with Yahweh. So Elijah says there's going to be a drought in the land. It's not going to rain. And this is going to get bad. When the text tells us that the drought ended, it tells us that it's the third year of Ahab's reign. Perhaps three years had passed without a single drop of rain. Now we, uh, when Lindsay and I moved back here to Georgia six years ago, we were in the kind of toward the tail end of, of a long drought, a, a long many years without, uh, without enough rain. But I don't think three years passed without a single drop. The text tells us that there's famine in the land. There's want of food. People are hurting. People are suffering. It's bad. Solomon had prayed, Lord, if there's famine, if there's drought, if our people have turned away, if all these bad things have come upon us because we've invited them upon us. Please hear us when we repent. Hear us when we cry out to you. Hear us when we give back our hearts to you. The story of Elijah is the story of a man who was raised up, was raised up in the midst of Israel's Waywardness in the midst of Israel's rebellion against Yahweh, in the midst of Israel's trying to hang on to just whatever worked in life. Whatever worked. Whatever would provide. Whatever would meet needs. And he calls them back to faithfulness to Yahweh, their Lord and their God. Elijah is one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. He's an incredible man. I, I always remember as a kid thinking that he was one of the biggest figures in the Old Testament. I always thought, man, yeah, he was big time, right? And I, and I always thought of Elisha, you know, the guy who comes after him. He was kind of like his Robin to, 
Elijah's Batman. You know, he was pretty cool, but not nearly as big. As I've gotten older, I realize there's a whole lot more details about Elisha's ministry, a whole lot more miracles and everything that you read about about Elisha. But for some reason, Elijah just was planted into my mind. It was ingrained in my head as a kid that he was huge. He was larger than life. He was a hero. He was an amazing character in the Old Testament. And he really was. But his, his story is not filled with all the details that some of the heroes of the Old Testament are. He was an incredible, incredible prophet of God. So much so that his, his name is brought up in the prophecies of the coming Messiah. That there would be a forerunner coming. We know him as John the Baptist who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. It was Elijah's name that was brought up when Jesus said, who do, who do the people say that I am? And his disciples said, some say Elijah, maybe one of the prophets, maybe come back from the dead. Some think perhaps even John the Baptist. Elijah's name is, is found in the hall of fame, so to speak, of the Old Testament saints. He was a hero, a mighty man, a great prophet, one who called Israel back to faithfulness in Yahweh. One of the things that we've got to bear in mind when we consider this idea of heroes is that heroes are persons. I use that term intentionally. I didn't say heroes are people because when we think of people, we think of groups. We think of, you know, cultures and that sort of thing. Persons is a very technical term. You are a person. You have the potential, just as Elijah did, you have the potential for great good and great evil. You have the power of influence. You have an ability to shape others and ultimately through shaping others, the ability to shape culture. Culture is shaped not by institutions, but by people. By heroes, whether for good or ill. Persons have incredible potential. Incredible potential to be incredibly good and incredible potential to be incredibly evil. The story of kings is about the power of persons. You read through about these kings, many, many of whom, most of whom, are evil, reprehensibly evil, incredibly awful. Some offering their children as sacrifice to the pagan gods. Unbelievable the sins that some of Israel's kings led their people through. But those kings were persons, and they were potential heroes. They had the great potential for good and the great potential for evil. They had the ability to influence and to shape others in their culture. And sadly, those northern tribes, the greater part of Israel's kingdom, centered out of the capital city of Samaria, all of their kings, not a single one is said to be a good king who followed after their father David. Instead, you all hear, you hear that they followed after Jeroboam's sin. And we think, what the, what's the significance of this man Jeroboam? He was the first king of the north after the, the death of Solomon. And I think the recurrence of his name, even in relationship to Ahab here, it ought to remind us that these people had potential. They had potential to shape culture, to shape others, and potential to do great good or great evil. Unfortunately, those northern kings all did evil. 
There were some in the southern kingdom who did great good. Incredible good. We think of Josiah, one of the, perhaps the greatest beyond David. And those who did good are said to have followed after their father David. And those who did evil, not so much. These names of comparison come up to remind us these people shaped the lives of their nations. Either in faithfulness to Yahweh or gross unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And that's something that's peculiar to personhood. You have the ability to influence others. You have the ability to shape others. Not just you, all of you. All of us. Everyone who lives has the ability to shape others. And in shaping others, they have the ability to shape culture. Elijah, we lift him up as a hero because of the great exploits, the great things that he did. The adventures of his life, we're enamored by them. We read of this contest on Mount Carmel and we think, oh, that's so wonderful and that's so cool. But as a hero, he was simply a person. He was a person with great potential. Those of you in school certainly won't want to hear this, but... um, Tests reveal quality. The quality of education. Now, hear me out. Not all tests are created equally. Some, you know, I, I, I uh, as a teacher for a number of years, I always had students who tested poorly. Those, those little scantrons and, you know, pop quizzes and all those things aren't the only tests in life or even in the educational system. The greatest test to education is what happens beyond the classroom. That's the greatest of tests. What happens in real life? What happens once the preparation is said to be over and final? Tests ultimately reveal quality. They reveal the quality of education. They reveal the quality of a team. Look, I I grew up in Mississippi. You see I'm wearing my red and blue. I'm excited Ole Miss win. I'm not... I'll tread very lightly here. I know we've got some Bama fans. I'm not going to dig myself into a hole I can't get out of. But look, this is, this is confession time for me. Like, I, I grew up in central Mississippi. It was kind of south Mississippi, but we always called it central Mississippi. You know, and I grew up with teams that, oh, they had so much promise, and yet they every single year, when they faced tests, they would fail miserably. There would be some times where State or Ole Miss would pull off a big upset, but it was always an upset. You know, yesterday, was, this week, was a huge test for a number of teams. If you're a college football fan, you're excited, angry, upset, crying, depressed, all sorts of things going on probably in your life. Probably all mixed in together like a nice jambalaya. But, um, you know, we, we, like, we like seeing... What, we hate tests, but we like seeing tests that are conquered. You, you uh, Falcons fans, you love calling uh, Matt Ryan Matty Ice. You like seeing when he's, when he's under the gun, when he's, in, when he's in a test, you like seeing him prove victoriously. You Baltimore fans, you like seeing your pitching staff being tested 
and coming out on top. We like the story of clutch pitchers. We like those stories of clutch quarterbacks, clutch receivers. Just throw it up, he'll catch it. Because tests reveal quality. As a Mississippi fan growing up, you know, our, we were always disappointed, always disappointed. When big, big tests came, the quality was shown to be poor, but not this time. Tests reveal also the quality of our faith. It is in the test of life, the testing of our faith, that we, that we find what we're really made of. Those are important. Elijah here leads Israel into a test of their faithfulness and their unfaithfulness ultimately to Yahweh. He offers a challenge. A challenge to the gods of the world. A challenge to those false gods that they had followed after. Anytime I think of the word challenge, I'll... I'll, uh, Admit to you, I always think is the weirdest thing. I always think of, um, I don't know, I'm going blank here. I always think of the um, um, the Bill Cosby show when uh, there was an episode where it was the weirdest, the weirdest, weirdest episode. But uh, for some reason or another, it's a it, he's wearing tap shoes. And, uh, or, yeah, he's wearing tap shoes, and there's this challenge that's going on. He, he issues a challenge to this older man who's tap dancing, and they're, they're going through this, you know, challenge thing. And so they'll kind of one-up each other. But um, Elijah calls for Israel to face this challenge. He says, look, you followed after all these false gods, You've, you've ridden the fence for far too long. You've tried to maintain some moderate sense of faithfulness to God. And yet you've also tried to use whatever works in following these other false gods. He says, let's have a contest. Let's, let's have a challenge. Let's put all of these gods to the test. Let's test the quality of Yahweh's dependability here. Let's test the quality of Israel's sincerity here. Are you going to sincerely and wholeheartedly follow after the one who proves himself? The test is very interesting. It's a very odd challenge. Elijah says, look, there are so many other prophets of, of Baal here. Let's, uh, let's let them kind of keep the score. They'll select a couple of bulls. They'll pick theirs first. They'll build an altar, offer a sacrifice. And I'll build an altar offer a sacrifice, and we'll see which God answers by fire. And it's interesting. If you read, I, I encourage you, read this chapter, or read this passage specifically in, uh, in the New Living Translation. You'll be kind of shocked and amazed at some of the things that you read. It's actually a really good translation of this contest. But essentially what happens is, is the, the prophets of Baal, they offer their sacrifice. Of course, they, they put no fire uh, to the sacrifice and they're crying out and they're crying out and hours pass and they're just begging and pleading and they're, they, they begin cutting themselves and, and they're bleeding and, and it's, it's bad. And Elijah starts actually mocking Baal. It's, again, read his mockery in the New Living Translation. It'll blow your mind. 
he he says um, he says, "Come on, cry a little louder. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe maybe his ears aren't aren't in tuned enough. Keep crying out. Perhaps he's sleeping. Maybe he's on a journey." At one point, he says, "Maybe he's relieving himself." I mean, he is just picking the scabs off the wounds before they even get a chance to heal. He is just laying into them. And it's, it's, it's amazing, it's fascinating, the challenges that he's offering. So in the end, the fire doesn't fall, and he says, okay, you've had your opportunity. He builds up the altar. He, it, the text tells us he builds it with 12 stones representing the tribes, the original tribes of Israel. And he offers the sacrifice. And it's amazing what he says. Um, he says, all right, bring in some buckets of water and pour it. Pour it over the sacrifice. And so they pour buckets of water over the sacrifice. He says again. They go fill up the buckets. They bring in the water. They pour it all over the sacrifice. Now think about it. It's a drought. They're bringing in buckets of water. He is being, he is being relentless and he is being very uh, uh, seemingly wasteful in this challenge. Again, a third time, the buckets of water are brought in. And the text tells us that the water is just dripping off of the sacrifice. It's filling up the trench and everything. It's just a sopping wet mess. And very humbly praise, O Yahweh, reveal yourself here. Don't leave us all looking like a bunch of fools. Me in particular. <laughs> the fire falls and the text tells us that the entire offering is consumed and the water is licked up out of the trenches. There's not a drop of meat or blood or water left. This test revealed the character of Yahweh, the quality of his dependability. And it also backed Israel into a corner to reveal the quality of their sincerity. Who are you going to follow? You're going to follow just whatever works today? Something else tomorrow? Are you going to follow the one who has proven himself to be faithful even to his own hurt? Faithful even to the point of embarrassment in your behalf? God uses heroes. He's always looking for heroes. He's looking for moms to be heroes to their kids. He's looking for dads to be heroes. He looks for families to be heroes in a culture that does everything but just outright mock the family. Though sometimes that might happen. He's looking for churches to be heroes. Remember that heroes are persons. They are not institutions. They have the potential for great good and great evil. They are essentially broken vessels. 
God's not looking for superheroes. He's looking for real life heroes. Real life Elijahs. As a kid, I always thought Elijah had it all together. Elijah was probably, you know, second in line only to Christ and being the perfect man. Incredible power, incredible patience and perseverance and oh, nothing could shake him, nothing could could stop him. Elijah was a broken vessel. You read the story of Elijah, these, uh, these chapters, 17, 18, 19. Man, you read about a man who, he's got his fears, he's got his doubts, he's got his anxieties, he's got his depression, he's got his grief. He is a real human personality. He was broken. I mean, he was, a, he was a mixed bag in a lot of ways. He had great faith and yet real anxiety. One of the first things we read about him is that he approaches this widow, and this widow has a little boy, her little son. And he asks her for some food, and she says, I got nothing. I got nothing for you. I, I've got just a little, little bag of meal and a um, little little jar of oil and I'm here fetching sticks so that I can cook a last meal for my son and I and then we'll, we'll die together. And his faith steps in and he says, oh, that's not going to happen. Look, you go cook that meal, you won't go short. Before you cook that meal, you mind cooking me a cake? It's really funny how he says. Like, before you do that, you mind hooking me up? Incredible faith, and yet real anxiety. The boy ends up dying. After some time passes, the boy dies, and the widow says, what in the world? Really, you've you've come here, God's done incredible things to you, and my little boy's going to die. Was this like a settling of accounts of my past sins? What's up here? And you can sense anxiety in Elijah. Oh, Lord, why, why, why? Elijah had unfettered dependence upon God, and yet he had very obvious impatience. He was bold enough to approach Ahab, who wanted him dead. He was bold enough to approach him and say, it's going to be a drought. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. You can imagine the, the moxie. Wow. King of Israel, and you're going to step before him and say, it ain't raining until I say it's going to rain. And yet when he says, right after this contest on Mount Carmel, when he says, all right, rain is a coming. The drought, I declare it ended. It's, it's finished. Rain is coming. There's no signs of rain. He sends a servant out to look. Is there any sign of anything coming? Nope, there's nothing. Okay, uh, go look again. Seven times he sends his servant. Go, go take a look. Make sure there's a rain cloud forming or something. That's impatience. There's a small, small cloud forming. Looks like it might become something. 
That's it. Elijah in his brokenness, you see also radical obedience. And yet what we would probably call clinical depression. We read of these great stories, Mount Carmel and the contest of the Baals and how incredible Elijah was and how faithful he was. God told him, go down to the brook and you'll be fed by ravens. And he's got enough faith and obedience to to follow through. And yet after this contest, Jezebel says, I want him dead. And Elijah goes into a spiral of depression. Lord, I'm the only one that's left. Why in the world have you called me to be prophet and left me out here all alone? Everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I guess I'll go out and eat worms. Or become food for the worms. He says, I can't do it, Lord. I'm done. I'm finished. That's when Elisha's raised up. See, no doubt Elijah was a, was a hero. But as a hero, he was a person. The quality of his character was tested, revealed to, through tests. God used him. I mentioned that God uses heroes. He uses real people to do real things. What does God want? He wants you. Not only does He want you, He wants your heart. Not just your feelings, not not just your, you know, your motivation, but your heart. Every bit of who you are on the inside. Every bit of who you are that makes decisions, every bit of who you are that decides what's next, He wants that. That's your heart. What God wants is yourself. All of you. Your personality, your personhood, your scraped up knees, every bit of who you are, He wants you. Because ultimately, He calls all of us to in some measure be heroes to others. Every last one of you is seen by somebody else as being bigger than them, as being smarter than them, as being more unshakable than them. You know, we look at ourselves and we think, I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I don't have all these cool stories that some other people have about life. I don't have all these life lessons that everybody else has learned. My testimony is not all that exciting. I'm kind of a, a boring schlub. But everybody, as a person, has great potential. 
And everybody, as a person, is looked to by someone else. And what God wants from us is for us to bring ourselves to Him and say, Lord, I don't think it's much. You probably don't think it's much. But it's what I've got and it's yours. The interesting thing is that God will take it. And He'll transform it. In Israel, you had the sacrificial system. You can read about all the details of it in the book of Leviticus. And you have these whole burnt offerings, these offerings that the entire thing was to be consumed by Yahweh. And one of the interesting things about Israel's sacrificial system is it took into account, because Yahweh took into account, the neediness of the people. What God demanded was what they could offer. The poor were able to bring not goats and bulls, but they were able to bring pigeons, turtle doves, because it was what they could, what they could bring. And you may look at your own life, you may look at your own self, you may look at your own sacrifice and think, it's not much. But Yahweh will look to you and say, it's good enough. He's looking for you and me to be a hero to someone else. Not a superhero, a real hero. We've got to be vulnerable enough to say, Lord, you can have me even if it makes me look like a fool. Even if I can't do this hero thing as well as the next guy, you can have me. Let's pray.